0: we're up to here. This is the sixth book of the Old Testament. So that that first block of five are called the books of Moses or the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then the next book is Joshua. We're doing a a brief series on that this summer. And this really helps you understand how you get from this group of people coming out of uh, slavery in Egypt and then their time in the wilderness and then inhabiting the promised land, because by the time you get to the other books, they've they've set up shop in the promised land. So this is the the how that happened, and it's named after the man that led them into the promised land, um, Joshua. Let me say this before I read the passage. You know, when I was working uh, at the beginning of the summer about, you know, I knew that we couldn't look at every chapter, every passage. We just have the summer. We're just kind of really looking at highlights in the book of Joshua. And, uh, and I saw this text about cities of refuge, is what we're looking at this morning, these cities of refuge. I thought, you know, I'd like to look at that. And I, I just I sort of wondered how applicable it would be when the time rolled around. And then lo and behold, it almost feels like I picked this text because of current events. Um, manslaughter. Obvious recent news. Um, needing asylum. Edward Snowden floating around the globe looking for asylum. Um, Issues of or or policies toward people who are in your midst that are not what we would call naturalized, uh, the alien in your midst. And all that to say, this text was already in the queue. Uh, It was in line as the next passage that we would look at. But I think what we're seeing is just the abiding relevance of the Word of God. And the hope is that this is not just going to be something that lightly has to do with current events, but that this is, yet again, as we hope with every passage, a way of seeing um, windows into the good news, the gospel, that we're seeing things about the God who does the redeeming, and we're seeing things about ourselves who need the redeeming. So with that in mind, let's look at Joshua chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible, just that whole chapter is right there in the bulletin. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities, And shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment." ...until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness, on the Tableland, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood, till he stood before the congregation. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your Word, we want to pause and think about the Lord Jesus when He had just been raised from the dead, standing with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. And telling them that they didn't understand the Scripture. And starting at the beginning, explaining how all these passages, all their Scriptures, were about Him. And Father, it seems strange to talk about uh, cities set apart for manslaughter, how that would be about Jesus, or how it would even be about us. But we pray that You would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from Your Word. And we can't do that for ourselves, but You can. So please do, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had the opportunity to meet a woman when uh, when we lived in Nashville, which is where my family lived before we moved to Greenville. And in fact, we were in the same chaplain's sort of organization. And uh, she was a chaplain who did a lot of work on the campus where we worked and also did a lot of work in Nashville, very recognized by the city for her work, especially for a ministry that she started for prostitutes. And she had, just really had more knowledge and insight about their real lives, what leads to it, how a woman becomes involved in this, what they deal with, what justice and injustice looks like for them than, than anybody that I've ever personally interacted with. And I remember her making the point, just we were having a group discussion and this came up, um, because one of the things she would do is she, you know, she didn't just like hang out her shingle that says prostitute ministry and wait for, you know, people to show up. She really went out pursuing where this was going on and would go out with other people into really dicey parts of the city, wee hours of the morning and sort of find the people she wanted to minister to. Um. But she said something that had been very disheartening was to see the response of law enforcement to, the, to the, the murders of prostitutes. Because she said that she felt like what she saw again and again and again was sort of a throwing up of the hands. And, and I'm, I'm not citing this to throw, throw law enforcement under the, under the bus. That, that's, that's not the point. This, but this was her observation. She said what she saw over and over was kind of a shrugging of the shoulders of, you know, I mean, when you're involved in an incredibly high-risk lifestyle, these things happen. And her response was, I get that, believe me, I get that, but they're people. When the woman decides to be a prostitute, yes, she's a prostitute. It is incredibly high-risk. But she's a person. Like, are we growing accustomed to the murder of people? Any kind. And I thought about that coming to this passage, and just after I sat with it for a while, because I just it, even as I reflected on it, I thought about my own, I don't know, just my own inner life. We are surrounded in a fallen world with news of people dying. And sometimes it's for natural causes. Sometimes it's for sickness. But people kill and get killed all the time. And that's always been the case since the world has been fallen. And then with the 24-hour news cycle, you're always hearing about people getting killed all over the place. And it's just, it's so taxing to try to be emotionally involved in that that finally you kind of almost as a survival mechanism have to go, people get killed. And so, at some level, you sort of have to get desensitized to it. And if there's anything that this text is shining and blinking to say, it's this God has never become desensitized to killings. In any form or fashion, God has never become, especially in the community of God's people, he's never become desensitized to killings. That's what these cities of refuge have to do with. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to start off and just kind of lay some groundwork, some basics, because some of you may have heard of these cities. When I said cities of refuge, you knew what I was talking about. This may be the first time you've ever heard of these cities, that they're in the Bible. So let me start off with kind of the who, what, where, when. And then when we get to why, I want to do what we do a lot when we get to passages and we're saying how does this passage help us understand Jesus Christ? How, you know, he's never mentioned here. How does this passage help us understand the gospel? And we want to ask two questions of it. And we do this a lot in here. And the hope is not only that this helps us with this passage. I, my hope is that this is helping you and me learn how to read our Bibles. That every time you're coming to a passage, whether it's John three sixteen, very obviously about Jesus... Or it's, you know, passages about mildew in Leviticus. That when you're coming to... And and they're there. You're coming to it saying, What does this show us about the God who does the redeeming? What does this show us about us who need the redeeming? So that's going to be the why. Let's start off with the basics. All right. Who, what, where, when? Who? Who Who are the parties in this text? First off, you've got the manslayer. The manslayer is someone who has killed another person without intent or unknowingly. Those words show up several times in the passage, without intent or unknowingly. It wasn't premeditated, wasn't willful. You know, that the example that's used in other passages, and by the way, if you're taking notes, the two passages that before this lay out the requirements for this city. Because you know, in verse 2. It said, um, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. So he's saying, these laws are already on the books. The two passages are Numbers chapter 35 and Deuteronomy chapter 19. If you want the, the background, Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19. And the examples it uses in there is, hey, if you've got two guys, they're out in the forest, they're cutting wood. One of them is using an axe and he rears back, and the axe head comes off and strikes a man and kills him, what do you do for that man? Because he didn't kill that person with intent. That's the manslayer. The avenger of blood. Who's that? The avenger of blood would be the closest male relative of the person who was killed. Because in Israel, if there was capital punishment, it wasn't done by you know, a firing squad or a gas chamber. It was done by... It wasn't done by the state. It was done by the closest male relative. He's the avenger of blood. You've got the elders. The elders of each of these six cities, they are the ones who, when the person who's a manslayer flees to the city, he would stand at the entrance. The gates were always open the elders would meet him and they would decide whether to bring him into asylum and most of the Old Testament scholars that I looked at said a better translation than refuge because this is a different Hebrew word than like when God says that he's our refuge would be asylum these are cities of asylum they would decide whether to give him asylum or not and God was very specific if you willfully commit a murder and then, like, try to flee into one of these cities, that's a no-go. You know, God saw through that little loophole that He had thought up. All right, so if they, if they got there and they realized this was with intent, you're left to your own devices, or you stand before the congregation. There's the elders, there's the congregation. God's people are involved in the decision-making of justice. And there's there's one other party I want to mention. I can't spend a lot of time on this, but I I can't not acknowledge this. Look at the end in verse 9. These are the laws on the books for Israel. This is Israel coming into its own, kind of setting up shop officially, even judicially, in Israel. But look at verse 9. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them. Now, I, I just I can't not acknowledge that that over and over and over in the law of God, God is not only making laws and stipulations and, and even protection for his own people. But he's saying, if someone just along the way just sort of sets up shop with you, and he or she is not descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they just kind of decided, "Ah, you know, you're as good a group of people as any. These laws go to bat for them as well. God does that about manslaughter. He does that about physical needs, food, shelter. That's who God is. All right, that's the who. What is it? You've already heard this. It's asylum for manslaughter. It's asylum for a killing without intent or unknowingly. Where? There were six cities of asylum. And Old Testament scholars have looked at this, and as you know, they're identified in the passage. And when you look at how they're laid out, pretty much wherever you were in the promised land, if you unwittingly killed someone you could get to one of these cities in one day's travel on foot. In other words, God had them placed so that if you've got to get there, it's not a week and a half to get there and then the avenger kills you on the way. You can get to it. Just start running immediately. Who, what, where. When. And there's a when to it. This is going to be important. Let's say you, you, you were cutting wood And the axe head came off, and you killed the guy that you were working with. And you realize it, and you realize his male relative is going to come after you, and you bolt. And you get to the city, the elders meet you, they receive you, they they understand your case. And so you're there at the city. How long do you stay there? Did you catch that in the passage? Very important. You stay there... Verse 6, "...he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then, at, in other words, after the high priest dies, the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled." Now, we're going to talk about that more in a second. But that's sort of the, the basics, Okay? Who, what, where, when. Now, let's get into the why. Uh, or, or at least, what is this showing us? First, what is this showing us about God, who does the redeeming? And what is this, showing, this uh, uh, showing us about ourselves, who need the redeeming? All right, first about God. First thing I'd say is this. It is showing us, and we've already said this, that for God, every death is significant. And I don't think we want to verbalize this about ourselves, but if we're honest, we feel that some deaths are significant and others are not. I mean, it was very interesting to pull up to worship last Sunday, and across the street in front of the the water utilities building, it was just canvassed with law enforcement and fire trucks. And I I don't know how many of you saw this, but um, a homeless man had died on the front steps of the building. And so, I didn't see his body, but I saw his covered body and just teams of uh, law enforcement. And you know what? That is a good sign. Because cultures can get to the point where when someone like that dies, you say, well, he was a nobody. And it's actually a good sign to see lots of response and lots of people on site and even the fact that it was covered in the news because there's a theological basis for taking the death of a homeless man that seriously and it is that he bore the image of God. Everyone does. Every man and woman and child bears the image of God. It's always a big deal to God when that image is attacked. I mean, for instance, and I'm not going to preach two sermons here, but just, I want to give this a head nod. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, there's a, there's a, a law about what do you do in Israel if you're in the promised land and you're just walking in a field and you find a corpse and you can tell this person was murdered. Like, what if you come upon a body and you can tell this is not someone who died of natural causes, but the person was stabbed, what do you do? And God says this, the elders from whatever Israelite city is closest to where you found the corpse must come out with a heifer and they must take a heifer, uh, direct it to a place where there's running water and break its neck in the running water. And they must essentially say to God, we don't know what happened, we don't know who did this, but we just know that life was taken an atonement needs to be made. Isn't that amazing? That there's a law for, what do you do for a corpse, and no one knows what happened except God? It's God's way of saying, every death is important. Whatever the age, whatever the income. The second thing is this. Um, <laughs> this is going to almost sound like job justification when I say this, but uh, God works through fallible elders. Now again, if if you're a manslayer and you flee to one of these cities, you're met at the gate by the elders. Think about the power that God vested in these fallible men. That when they're there, and they weren't, you know, they didn't see video of whatever happened. They're just having to try to get the facts as best they could. Maybe the avenger of blood shows up and they listen to, you know, his perspective. They decide for God whether the person is given asylum or not. And if they're not, it's pretty much a death sentence. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but God works that way through all of Scripture. And again, this is not my way of justifying mine or Jake's jobs or the ruling elders' jobs. But it's to say this... Wasn't I just now? Okay. Yeah, Joshua. It's a fantastic book. Let me pick back up on that. Uh, all that to say, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you just you see that in, the elders of an Israelite city are not an exact parallel to the elders of a local church. But you know, I, I want you to think about even how God incarnate spoke about fallible leaders. The apostles were fallible. I don't mean in the writing of Scripture as they were led by the Holy Spirit, but I just mean, you sinners that made mistakes. And he said to his apostles, you know, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Your decisions will have heavenly parallels. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Huge points about the church and authority and office. But that's... How God works. And and believe me, I, Jake, uh, the elders of downtown Prez, believe me, we get it, that we are fallible. But our God is a God who does entrust real authority in decision-making to fallible elders. It's, It's kind of always been that way. And that's worth saying. What do we see about ourselves who need the redeeming? The um, first thing is this, and I, really this, is, this, this drives the passage a lot, that anger and vengeance are insatiable. You know, one, of, one of the stipulations in those earlier passages that I mentioned, Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19, one of those uh, stipulations was that if you have fled to a city of asylum, and then maybe you just kind of feel like you need a change of scenery. Maybe you want to step out of the, you know, because their cities are not like Greenville. They're pretty like little medieval kind of towns with, you know, gates and walls. If you decide that you need a change of pace, maybe you want to do, you know, work on some distance running or something. And you step out of the city, God says, in, in effect, if you ignore the provision I've made for you and the avenger of blood finds you, he may kill you. And that's telling us two things. Number one, don't ignore God's provision, and I want to circle back to that. But number two, man, once anger is on you, once you have kind of thrown the switch for vengeance, it's hard to unthrow it. I I, I told Dana just this past week, I said, you know, you know who someone that I feel like I get is the Hulk. And I know he's not real. I understand that. And I understand that he's computer-generated. I get that. I just mean that, to me, anger is not... I just rarely feel miffed. You know, I wish I had the power to grab, like, an F-22 out of the sky and throw it to the ground. You know, I wish I could smash one alien with another alien. I, I get where he's coming from. Just don't have the physique to back it up. And... Uh, to state the obvious, but, you know, a little bit more pointed uh, as an example. I guess confession is good. Just last week, um, in a moment of anger at the dinner table, I threw my fist down on the table. It ruined everything. It just killed our dinner. Killed it. And, in fact, I'm getting angry thinking about it. Just kidding. Um, Threw my fist down and... Made the round of apologies. Next morning, reading my Bible. And I'm reading the book of James. Great book. Preached on James one time. And I get to the phrase in chapter 1, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, it's the feeling of the arrow going... And you know that. Uh, Proverbs says, it's the fool who gives vent to his spirit. Isn't that interesting? Because we tend to think, oh, it's almost like anger, the desire for retaliation is this liquid inside of me. And if I don't give some kind of pressure release to this liquid, then it's going to hurt me. And Proverbs says, actually, that's the thinking of a fool. You know what a fire does when you vent it? It stokes it. And this anger thing is a bigger problem in our Christian lives than we would probably care to admit. It will take us down. Uh, The older I get, the more it frightens me about my own self. And should frighten, in a good way, all of us. When cities have to be set aside to protect people from anger and vengeance. That's telling you something about who we are. But I don't want to leave it there because, I mean, we've we've got some points here about our anger and elders and and things like that. But just at the end of the day, all right, so I don't know. What do I do with all this? And I, I want to make this the last point is what the cities of refuge show us is that there are things that I can't resolve that only the high priest can And this is the most important point. There are things that I can't resolve that only the high priest can. I want to, I've already read this verse, but I want to read it again. Verse 6. And again, picture the circumstances. We were out working. Let's say this. Let's say a guy is, is clearing land, and there's a drop-off, and there's a, you know, boy... has tons of big stones and rocks. So let's say he and some guys, they dislodge a big stone and it rolls down and they don't know there's a pathway there and it hits a person and kills someone. And the avenger of blood comes after this worker, you know, this farmer. He flees to the city of Asylum. He comes in. The elders allow him to stay. And he stays for however long the high priest lives. You know, one New New Testament scholar made this point. He said, a city of asylum was simultaneously a refuge and a prison. So no one woke up knowing that was going to happen. But now, you're both protected and you're incarcerated until the high priest dies. But then it says this, when the high priest dies, what do you do? It's resolved. Isn't that weird? In other words, hey, avenger of blood... If yesterday, when the high priest was still alive, if you had found the manslayer outside of that city, you could have avenged the death. But because that high priest died, it's over. And that guy can go back to his house and live in his house and live with his family and resume his normal life. It is as if all that was wrong, even though it wasn't cold-blooded murder, was on the priest, and that with his death, it's handled. And God doesn't explain how. He just says, when the high priest dies, it's handled. Now, if that doesn't point ahead to the Lord Jesus, I don't know what does. You know, but I mean, think about, every time a lamb was killed as a sacrifice for sin, that was God's provision for atonement. But did the lamb, the actual animal, have power to remove sin? And God keeps saying, no. If it did, you wouldn't have to do this over and over and over and over and over. And you've got this whole fleet of priests. And you have the high priest, who's the only one that can go in behind the veil, the Ark of the Covenant, only on the Day of Atonement. The only person that can do that. When he does that, does it accomplish things? Yes. Is it fixing it? No. Because he's having to do it over and over and over and over and over. What were all those lambs pointing to? The lamb. What were all those high priests pointing to? And what were all the deaths of the high priest pointing to? The high priest. And as, as I, I, I love to look at, whether, whether, and I'm, I'm not trying to be inappropriate, but whether Jesus' privates were covered or not, we don't know. But he was essentially naked, the second Adam, on the cross. But he did have one thing on. Crown of thorns. Why were there thorns right there in Judea for some Roman soldier to grab and fashion a little makeshift crown? Because the earth is cursed. Cursed. Genesis. The thorns are the symbol of the curse. And when Christ dies for His people, wearing this crown, He doesn't just take away the guilt of all our willful sin, although He does that. Hallelujah. But with the death of the High Priest, He's bearing on His body the fact that this is a big, fallen, messed up, world and things happen to mortal people that shouldn't happen and it may be that it's no one's fault but we're still left going okay I get it that it's no one's fault but like that's horrible and I don't know where to put it it went on him it went on to him do you understand that in First Corinthians fifteen, Paul says that the work of Christ accomplished something, which means that the perishable will put on the imperishable; that the mor- mortality will put on immortality. Something's going to happen to God God's people, where it's not just that you won't die. You can't be killed. Immortal. Mort. What's the mort? Mort is death. To be immortal is to be unkillable. That the work of the great high priest is to do something where for his people, if you trust him, if you believe him, he will not just take away our sins, our soul, but one day our bodies will become imperishable. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when mortality puts on immortality, then the saying will come true, death is swallowed up in victory. The work of Christ is not just to take away sins, although He does that. But, guys, it's so that one day, the axe head cannot hurt you. The crash cannot hurt you. The crash cannot hurt you. Because the high priest has died, the immortal became mortal so that mortals can become immortal. That's who God is. Amen. Let's pray together. Christ Jesus... Son of God, we thank you with all our hearts that you died to set men free and you died to take away guilt and sin. And we sing about it and we say it and we're about to celebrate it, but we want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, immortal God, took on mortality so that mortal believers... become immortal, that one day we could go into the city where the gates are never shut because there's no more danger. And Father, if there be any here this morning who have not yet believed in the good news, good news for their souls, good news for their perishing bodies, that you would grant saving faith. Lord, for those who do believe, fortify, strengthen us. Encourage us with Your Word. Feed us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.